Oh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to all of you. It's nice to have you joining us. Uh, I missed the introduction because I came in just right when Jeremy was talking. So you guys are from the Metro Church, and to what do we owe the pleasure? (laughs) Always helps to suck up to the preacher. Y'all should learn that. That's awesome. Um, Thank you guys. We're glad that you're joining us today. We, as we announced this morning, we are starting a month-long Sunday night series on uh, uh, practical forgiveness. We talk a lot about forgiveness. It's a key part of the Christian walk, but uh, we, Jeremy and I thought we could just get into kind of the nuts and bolts, because all of us kind of know we're supposed to forgive, uh, but actually making ourselves, getting ourselves into the headspace where we can do that on a regular and consistent basis, kind of tough to do, and so uh, we thought we would uh, spend a little bit of time on these Sunday evenings working on that. Um, it's a great story. It's one of those stories which I can't prove is true, but I really, really want it to be true. Uh, it needs to be true. Um, it's a story from the time of the American Civil War. And uh, this was a time, you know, my wife is a historian, and she says that the worst wars are always civil wars. They're always the saddest wars. And the American Civil War was like that. It was brother against brother, cousin against cousin, relative against relative. It was a, it was a horrifying thing. And of course, the president of the United States during that time, Abraham Lincoln, was presiding over uh, this, this bloodshed. And he was at some gathering, and he made this remark, you know, some social gathering, and he made this remark to the effect that you know, he viewed the Southerners as erring human beings uh, that we hope to bring back into the fold one day. This was in the middle of the war when, when the fighting was still hot and when casualties were still mounting up and dead bodies were still being brought home. We want, we, we are erring, they are erring human beings. We want to bring them back if we can. And it was an old lady that stood up. And she was so angry that she rebuked the president in public for daring to be, you know, soft on the Southerners, basically, and uh, for, for saying anything about them other than that they are enemies who need to be killed. They need to be destroyed, I believe were the words that she used. And according to the story... Abraham Lincoln realized what was going on. He looked at her, he thought for a minute, and he said, Madam, don't I destroy my enemies if I'm able to make them my friends? Oh my goodness. For that spirit to come back into our politics is worthy to pray for is worthy to pray for. So our scripture reading tonight was that passage from Luke, from the crucifixion as Luke uh, recounts it to us. And it is a gruesome scene. Jesus beaten half to death, still uh, for a while dragging his cross. And then eventually they lay his cross because he's so weak 
they lay his cross on someone else and and the women of Jerusalem weeping and wailing because yet here's another set of Jewish boys going off to be killed by the Romans, to be humiliated by the Romans. And, and Jesus, you know, talks about not what's happening to him, but about what this means for the city of Jerusalem, that the city of Jerusalem, because I'm being rejected, Jesus says, the city's going to fall. And then, and then he says this, when he gets to the cross and they put him up on it and they're gambling at the feet of it to, just to take his clothes, the last stitch of clothing that was left to him, they've taken that away. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So Christians, if we did not have any other passage in the Bible except that, we would know that it's our job to forgive our enemies, right? We would know that. And we would know that no matter how bad our enemies are, our first thought is, is there a way for them to be forgiven? So this is cooked into the very bottom layer of this Christianity thing. And it's important for us, I think, to think about how we can be good at it. And uh, over the years, I look back through my notes, I had preached a lot of different things about the nature of forgiveness to this congregation. Uh, but I want to, tonight, as I promised, I want to talk about some practical things I can, we can do to help ourselves be better at this forgiveness thing. Uh, I'm not going to focus on the techniques that kind of are the next stage, which is what can I do to actually turn forgiveness into restoration. That's kind of a different set of topics and, and it's a different set of techniques, so we'll save that for another time. Just what can I do to be able to get myself to the place where I'm able to offer forgiveness? So, if you're taking notes, even in your head, practical technique number one for being better at forgiving. Build your peace on God not on those who do evil. Build your peace on God, not on those who do evil. Never, never, never make your peace and your joy dependent on those who are doing evil changing. Never make your peace and happiness dependent on those who are doing evil suddenly coming to their senses and apologizing to you, confessing their wrong, somehow having a change of heart. Now, I say that in absolute seriousness, uh, years of ministry experience, years of professor experience, students coming into me, and, 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 just, and, and people in the church sometimes coming into me, just spinning on this loop that they've been on for sometimes years, saying, why won't they admit what they did? Look at how evil it is. And usually the way the conversation goes is, we have another, and often I've had this conversation two or three times, we have another round of going through step by step, here's what they did, here's how bad it was, Here's how it hurt me so much. This is why it just still tears at my heart. 
you know, they're tr once again trying to convince me of how bad it is, which I kind of agree with them. It was horrible. But it is a loop. Beca and it's a loop they can't escape from because what they have to have, the terms that they've set up, is I have to have the other person, the wrongdoer, let me out of this dungeon. I have to have them do something. I have to have them say something in order to escape from this. And as long as they don't, as long as they won't admit they did wrong, as long as they won't confess their wrongdoing, as long as they won't come and apologize to me, then this is where I am. I just circle around this wrong. Never, never get in that position. And if you find yourself in that position, here's some ways to help you get out of it. Uh, I found... Uh, I found some people who had talked about this, and they said often this runs kind of uh, on a, uh, a fantasy script, you know, that, that if only I could get them to see what they did, then I would get to see that look on their face when they finally realize how wrong they were. If only I could just find the right words, maybe write them a letter or somehow, get, they, it would finally sink into them how hurt I am, how much pain I've caused. If only I could be there to see it when maybe not me, but somebody finally calls them to account for what they did. And I can see it finally sinking into them just how wickedly they've acted. It kind of runs on, on, on those kind of skids around and around and around. And the trouble is, the trouble is in this fallen world, the people that are, have done us wrong never follow our script. You know, we have this whole thing built up of how we're going to get them to apologize, and they never or frequently will not. And how they're going to be humiliated, and frequently they're just in denial. And they, sadly, in many of the worst cases that I know about, they go to their grave in denial. And so the people that they've hurt never get the satisfaction of hearing them say those words, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. And the escape from this cannot be that the person who did the wrong somehow turns around and does the right. I mean, that's what it should be, certainly. That would be great if that happens. Occasionally it does happen. You cannot make your peace dependent on that taking place. And in fact, I discovered a psalm that exactly addresses this issue. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalms 37. Psalm 37. It's a good psalm to meditate on, especially these first nine verses of it. Psalms 37. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Do not fret. There are evil people out there. Don't let it take your peace. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will take, he will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, and those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I believe the writer of that psalmist had us nailed almost precisely. He says, you are letting the evil that someone else did in the past hurt you right now today. As long as you stay on this cycle, you are letting them hurt you over and over and over again. So here's the technique. It's a prayer, and it's a prayer exercise. The thing about a prayer exercise is it's something you want to say over and over and over again. You want to use it sometimes multiple times a day, certainly every day. If this is a struggle that you're having, then this is the prayer. Even if they never change, even if they never admit what they did, even if they get away with it in this life, I will trust in the Lord. Let me say that again. Even if they never change, even if they never admit what they did, even if they get away with it in this life, I will trust in the Lord. This is kind of step one for getting your heart to a place where it's able to forgive. Is to take away the power of the person who's hurting you or has hurt you in the past to, to steal your peace. And to put that power for peace in the hands of God where it belongs. And so they no lo- you no longer depend on them to admit they're wrong. You no longer depend on them to get what's coming to them. You no longer need those things in order to have peace because you have God. And no kidding, this, the more you're struggling with this, the more you find yourself on one of those loops, the more this will do you good to say this prayer repeatedly. It's a prayer exercise. You just say it again and again and again, and it begins to change your heart. So that's technique number one. Technique number two. The Bible's pretty clear on this one. Trust in God's judgment. Trust in God's judgment. When I hold on to harm, when I hold on to wrong, when I'm holding a grudge, that is such a common human behavior. It's got to be because it works at least a little bit, and it does. I know as a preacher I'm not supposed to say stuff like that, but frankly, holding a grudge kind of works. It's this weird magic that is sort of effective because by, by thinking about and meditating on what, was, what wrong was done to me and how sweet it will be when that person finally gets what's coming to them, when they realize what they did wrong and they're forced to admit it, and they're forced to pay for what they did wrong. By meditating on that, I sort of transfer some of the pain I'm feeling. You know, psychologically, I sort of feel like I transfer some of it over onto them. 
So it kind of works. But like a lot of wicked solutions that we come up with, it does us in the long run more harm than good. Because in order for a grudge to work, to relieve any of my pain, what do I have to do? This is another one of those loops, right? It's actually part of the first loop to some extent. In order for me to feel that pain, I have to go back and relive the pain that was inflicted on me. I have to keep it hot. I have to keep it uh, active in my heart. This is what they did, and this is why it was so bad, and this is, this is why they are so wrong. I, I need to go back and keep that fervent, you know, that fervent heat of the grudge going. So who am I hurting? Right? I'm meditating on this person who committed abuse, or I'm meditating on this person who cheated me, or I'm meditating on this person who snubbed me or, or humiliated me. What are they doing? While I'm in misery, what are they doing? They're probably binging Netflix or, you know, having a grilled cheese sandwich or taking a nap. Or I am not hurting them at all. I am taking poison, hoping that the other person will die. The poison is killing me. Right? That's been said a long time. That's been said many times. And the, way, and the way out of that trap that the Bible gives us repeatedly is what you're hoping is that you'll get to exercise judgment, that you'll get to be the judge, and that you'll get to take revenge, or you'll get to you know, somehow balance the scales. I'll get even. I'll make things right. And the Bible says, don't go down that path. It's going to drive you nuts. Instead, trust in God's judgment. One of the weirdest passages about this is Jude. Jude doesn't have any chapters, it just has verses. So Jude, verse 9, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil, if anybody deserves to, you know, be talked about badly, it's the devil. When he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, himself to, to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. In other words, I'm going to take away my ability to get judgment and depend on God's ability to give judgment. Romans 12, 19 is very explicit about this. Quoting Deuteronomy, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, Deuteronomy 20, 32, I think, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. In other words, if I try to step in and insert my vengeance into a situation, I'm going to get them. I'm going to pay them. They're going to know that they did the wrong. Uh, if I do that, I am stepping into the shoes of God. I am trying to take the place of God. That's not going to go well. It's not going to go well for me. It's not going to go well for them. So, here's the technique to trust in God's judgment. Take that revenge fantasy that's playing in your mind. Call it up one more time. Call it up in detail. Here's the look that'll be on their face. You know, here's what I'll say. 
Here's what I'll do. This is how this whole, this whole situation, this is my revenge fantasy. And play it out in detail. And say over each element of that fantasy, I release my claim on judgment to make room for the judgment of God. Now, you can do this in a perfunctory way, and it probably won't do you much good. But if, you, if you're being plagued by revenge fantasies, that's how your grudge is playing itself out. Boy, I can't wait till I get even. Then take each element of that revenge fantasy and say this, I release my claim on judgment to make room for the judgment of God. There's so many reasons why that's the right move. One of the main ones is it's going to make you happier. But also, human beings are just terrible at creating justice. We are so bad at it. Uh, we overreact, we overpunish, we punish based on faulty information or misunderstandings. We do all kinds of foolish things. I understand this is the human world, and God understands that as well. But it is so much better to take a step back whenever we are capable of doing it to say, I release my judgment in order to make room for the judgment of God. So that's practical technique number two. Let's move on to practical technique number three. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins... Your Father will not forgive you your sins. Later on in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, Jesus tells the story of a guy who owes, you know, essentially the national debt of the United States, you know, and, he, and he, he's, he's personally on the hook for it. And the way they extracted money back then from your relatives and anybody who could pay is they would take you and torture you. You couldn't pay while you were being tortured, you couldn't earn money. You couldn't do anything. The idea was your pain would force those people who loved you to maybe cough up money they were hiding. And that was their method. And so this guy was going to be tortured in order to extract the money. And he falls on his knees in front of the one that he owes it to. And he says, please, 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 I, I will work so hard to pay this. It's an impossible debt. It's just, but I will work so hard and I will pay it back. And for whatever reason, the king has mercy on him and says, okay. I forgive it. I just forgive it. I just wipe it out. You're not even responsible for the debt now. He goes out. Somebody owes him the equivalent of about 100 bucks. He grabs him by the neck. I'm going to throw you into the torturers till I get the money from you. And the other servants report that back. And this guy is then judged extremely harshly by the king who originally forgave him. Jesus says, if you don't forgive the people that have wronged you that way, this is how God will treat you. Technique number three, remember what God has forgiven you. This is one of the driving engines of Christian forgiveness. And the technique I'm going to share with you, you literally cannot do this without it fundamentally changing the way you feel about the wrong that was done to you. I don't know what the precise results will be for you, 
but I guarantee you this technique is extremely powerful if you'll do it. So here's the technique. Whatever it is that you're having trouble forgiving, whatever the wrong thing is, I want you to call it to mind in detail. Normally we run away from that pain, we run away from those details. Call it to mind in detail. And in particular, the stuff that's been there, why is it so wrong? Why is it so worthy of condemnation? Why is it so despicable, this thing that's making me so uh, miserable? Why is it so bad? Explain to yourself in detail why it is that way so that you have that fixed in your mind. And then you take it and lay it beside the worst thing you've ever done that God has forgiven you for. Now, in order for this to work, you need to use the same level of meditation and detail about what you did wrong that God has forgiven you for. Why is it so wrong, what I did? Why is it so despicable? Why is it so worthy of God's condemnation? And the more you're able to meditate on that second half and to realize, in spite of everything, God forgave me, the more power there will be that's transferred over to your ability to forgive the person who's hurt you. You aren't forgiving because they apologized. You aren't forgiving because they came to you and finally fulfilled your fantasy. They may do that someday. They may never do that. This is not really dependent on them repenting. That's a whole different discussion we could talk about at another time. I'm just talking about you having the heart of God in you so that you are able to take wrong that's done to you and you are able, like God, to be able to say, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Okay, we're going to study this for this whole month. I hope that you guys are able to come back. hope you guys are able to come back. Please come and join us some more. At this time, I just want to offer the invitation. If you need prayers or help, or if you're ready to receive baptism and the forgiveness that comes with that, then we invite you to come as we stand and are led in song.